Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Sensational Shigi, live from Yancey Street, which if I am to trust the numbering on Apple Podcasts is actually episode 105 because I did them twice weekly, which in retrospect was kind of a ridiculous format and this is so much easier I think for everybody listeners as well. So anyway, um, happy day to you, whatever day it is. I am recording this a bit late because, you know, stuff happens and that's okay. Uh, DC Comics are out today, so when I go over the uh, comic book uh, pull list for this week, um, just note that anything from DC is most likely going to be um, out already if your shop releases things on Tuesday. Uh, It is true, though, that some shops release them on Wednesday altogether, so just keep in touch with your local comic shops. It's a good thing to do. Um, This week, as usual, we have news, um, a couple of very minor updates, and then um, a Multiverse of Madness theory based off of the rap gift they were given. We'll talk about that for a little bit. Uh, And then there's a lot of DC Warner stuff. (laughs) So uh, starting off with uh, trans representation in DC media, the future of DC entertainment, the Wonder Twins casting, the Constantine by J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot rumors and news. It's kind of a mix. Uh, and then White Knight Red Hood has been officially announced and we have all the info on that as well as, of course, uh, the one non-DC thing really here is the Love and Thunder trailer, Thor Love and Thunder, which of course that teaser came out yesterday. So I talk all about that. We're going to have that as well. Um, after that is the comic book picks for the week or for the past week. These are things that came out for DC Comics on the 12th and everything else on the 13th of April, including Batcat number 11, the penultimate issue of Tom King's series, Immortal Red Sonia number one, which I actually did not realize was coming out until it was out, so I didn't get to cover it beforehand, but it was I really enjoyed it. Uh, Electra number 100, Rain number four, and then a couple of other uh, really short things that were slightly less enjoyable, honestly. Uh, and before we get into the comic book polls for this week, again, DC Comics for the most part are going to be already out by the time you hear this uh, on the 19th today of April, uh, and then the 20th, everything else is going to be coming out, so we can go over that. Of course, since we are deep into Moon Knight now, we will be discussing episode three titled The Friendly Type. Uh, it was a bit of a snooze, I, uh, a, bit of, a, bit of, a bit of a bit of a duller episode, we'll say. Um, had some interesting things for sure in there, uh, but I think this this week's episode, number five, will get us back into a forward swing, of course, coming into the finale at six, I believe. After discussing Moon Knight, I have a a bit on Young Justice, which we are in season four this week's or last week's was episode 18 titled Beyond the Grip of the Gods. Things are getting very Zod up in here. Um, And then Doctor Who, Legend of the Sea Devils, the spring special. I don't have too much on the episode itself. It was cute. You know, I have a little bit on it, but I also uh, more importantly talk about the Sea Devils history and the history of Madame Ching, the pirate queen, because I am a honest fan. (laughs) Throughout the episode, I will be mentioning, uh, I have three this week, uh, separate articles that I found over the week of interesting things that I'll be mentioning. So you can check those out. Um, uh, as I go through the, I'll I'll be mentioning them through the episode, but you can check them out if you'd like to now there at the, uh, bottom of the episode's description. 
It'll be a little bit more on the future of DC Entertainment, on Madame Xing, and then on the Egyptian gods in Moon Knight, because I know I've already talked about that so much. Uh, I'll just let you read about it yourself if you really want to hear about it this time. Before we get into it, as usual, um, we have the Discord. If you would like to join the Discord, it is by invite only, so you'll have to message me to get involved. Um, it's really just literally a handful in there right now, uh, but that is not just a place for nerdy discussion, but you know, it's got general chat, vent channel, whatever other general categories, uh, just for chatting it up. Um, I have my Instagram that you can go and check things out. My username is Anna with the comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek. Um, and that's where I post updates for like podcasts is going to be late or anything. And then the website that I have is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. Um, it does have highlights on the front page. I need to update those. Um, but it has some cool highlights about some female characters. They're all at Marvel. Uh, DC is kind of lagging in the female character department. I struggle. Um, I don't want to make a big statement here. Continuing on. Um, anyway, uh, you can also have on my website uh, everything that I wrote before I started the podcast, which I used to just run it as a blog. Everything I talk about in the podcast used to be written out weekly. Uh, so all of that back history is there if you have any reason for wanting to go through that and check it out. I put a lot of work into it. Um, so I hope if you do, you get some kind of cheesy enjoyment out of it or something. Uh, I also have my pod notes on the site, which are, um, they're just the notes that I take through the week to, to make sure I get everything in the podcast to cover. Um, and you can read those instead of listening to the podcast or, uh, they, of course, they're for also for anybody who is hearing impaired so they can keep up with the podcast as they'd like to as well. Um, last, you can find links on my site to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which I believe is most podcast hosting apps. And that does include YouTube, where I have them all in the playlist, and I also post action figure review videos, most recently being Whis or Wiz, depending on which era or character, I guess, is talking, uh, from Dragon Ball Super, which they re-released his figure, I believe it was the San Diego Comic-Con special through SH Figure Arts, uh, which we at last got one. I got it for box price, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> and you uh, can see all about him and his figure on my Sensational She Geek YouTube channel. Um, I have a tour of our entire action figure collection that I have uh, with my husband, which is a 40 minute video. And I added 15 more minutes of extras in a second video that I posted after the fact of things that I forgot in that first one. So there's a lot of stuff there to check out. I do have a podcast Patreon. It's there under Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast. And if you don't want to do that, there's also uh, Kofi, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, Amazon Wishlist. It's all there in the link tree, um, which is at the bottom of each description of each episode. And again, I say this every time because I feel super awkward even mentioning this. Um, I am not... A person who will track you down and ask why you didn't do why you didn't donate it's it's completely voluntary if you do it once and don't do it again if you subscribe and unsubscribe like i i i i i appreciate anything and don't expect anything so that's where that stands that's so awkward to reach out to somebody and do that so i will never do that um 
but anyway, uh, I, I have a favorite red, I have a red bubble shop and I got a favorite, a couple of favorite sticker designs there. You can put it on anything. It's red bubble, a shirt, a mug, a coffee mug. I already said that. Um, <laughs> a print, whatever else you can really want. Um, but I have a couple of favorites. One is a woman's place in the comic shop and one is, um, Hulk's built tough. Cause I thought of that one night and I, thought I was hilarious and so I did that. Um, a few other things on there. It's there under She Geek Shop if you want to check that out. As I mentioned, I do have some very short brief updates for the news before we get into the major topics. Uh, starting off with the solicitations for July comic books from the big two, i.e. Marvel um, and DC. <clears throat> That I mentioned last week, I'd probably talk about this week. I'm not talking about it this week. I have plenty to talk about um, as it is uh, this week. So I will, and Marvel hasn't had theirs come out officially yet. So instead of going through and finagling together the Marvel stuff, I will just wait until it's out officially and we can talk about it all next week because I think it's supposed to come out tomorrow, Wednesday. Um, so that is that. Don't miss the Magic Podcast the Ileana Rasputin podcast that I put out on last Wednesday, I believe. Um, very popular, I'm finding, which is super exciting for me, um, for, for everybody who likes Ileana, I hope. <laughs> um, I did learn, though, that I will, next time I post uh, these kinds of things to Twitter, I'm going to have to make it so that only people who follow me can reply, because I had this for lack of a better word, pathetic incel go through and try to tell me I was wrong about a bunch of stuff, when in reality he was taking sound bites and not the whole thing in context, so making assumptions of what I was saying off the sound bites instead of just waiting and hearing me, you know, finish the story later on and theirs is what he was going to say. Basically just mansplaining the whole thing. So I'm trying to avoid that in the future by making it so you can only uh, comment on those things if you follow me. <laughs> um, but anyway, don't miss the magic podcast. I hope you enjoy it if you watch it. Um, another point, the Batman is officially on HBO Max. Happy belated the Batman HBO Max day. My husband has already watched it. He might be downstairs working right now, watching it a second time for... Um, Honestly, it's very likely, um, which is fine. And I hope that I can get him to record the podcast that we wanted to talk about it. Uh, and I'm going to see how many times he calls it a film, which will be a fun count to keep. <laughs> uh, in other news, uh, From is a series that was really, really good that I uh, highly enjoyed. I have no idea what it was on, um, what it was streaming on, but, uh, really liked it. It was very, if you like Lost, the show Lost, it's extremely in the vein of that. It's not made by the same people. It does have, um, one of the main characters from Lost is the pretty much main dude. Well, one of the main dudes from From, um, so really good show. It ended, uh, awesome, awesome thing. Severance ended, uh, another show that was really great. That ending, holy... Oh my gosh, I was I was literally sweating, uh, pathetic as that may be. I was sitting, reading my hands and sweating in the last few minutes of that show. Um, and uh, a couple of animes have ended as well that I watch. Um, if you watch uh, My Dress Up Darling, oh my gosh, I am trying to track down the uh, mangas, as well as Komi Can't Communicate. That was friggin' adorable. Which, why did they take out... Uh, I'm gonna go on a whole tangent about 
the character they took out of that for this anime. But anyway, moving on to the next brief point of news uh, and the final brief point of news before we get into the real stuff is Jason Momoa is going to star in a Minecraft movie for Warner. I don't have anything else on this because I don't play Minecraft. I've tried it a few times and I am just not that OCD or whatever it is it takes to, <laughs> to do that. Um, I, I just can't. I can't. Um, but there you go. If, if you're a fan of Minecraft, Jason Momoa is going to star in the movie that they're apparently making for it. And I, honest to God, can't think of how that's going to be. Anyway, <laughs> I had mentioned before the Multiverse of Madness gift, rap gift, you know, when the, when the show was concluded filming, uh, when it was completely wrapped, they give out gifts, right? Um, supposedly, this was something that was posted... I don't have specifics, it just says uh, Doctor Strange 2, obviously Multiverse of Madness crew member. Um, they were gifted this issue, Doctor Strange number 48. Um, and this is Doctor Strange volume 2, I believe. Quick check on that. Yes, volume 2 from 1981 in the Roger Stern era. Um, this was a rap gift for people on the show, apparently, or for at least this one person uh, from Sam Raimi, the director and writer, right? Um, and so people are looking at this issue, theorizing what it could mean based on what happens in the issue for what might be happening in the movie. Because why would they give, you know, it's obviously, uh, oh, and it was actually, yeah, it was specifically told to be reference material, right, for what happens in the movie. Um, so two things to note on this is that first, Doctor Strange 48 is where Strange and Doctor or Brother Voodoo meet for the first time. Um, I actually have this issue. I found it before any of this kind of started, uh, probably over a year ago now. Um, but it also has on the cover Clea, which is why I wanted to get it because it has the weirdest, okay, I'll say one of the weirdest, it's because there's a lot of weird ones, takes on her outfit. Um, just, I don't even, at first she's got pointy ears also on this cover, which like she, she doesn't, she doesn't have pointy ears. Um, and then her shoulder, her, like, her outfit is more or less the leotard, like, normal, but, she, but her shoulder, like, the pink shoulder things, whatever you want to call them, are just, like, the design of them is super bonkers and not like you see it really anywhere else in the comics. So I don't know if there just was no communication going on that, like, this is what she's wearing, this is what it's supposed to look like. I, I swear nobody communicated about it or he was just trying something new. This was a Marshall Rogers cover and apparently interior as well. Um, but those are the two points between Brother Voodoo and Clea being on just on the cover. Um, she's in the issue, of course, but um, the, the, the main thing about the issue being that it's the meeting of Strange and Voodoo, of course. Um, so the theories are going, it's it's either referencing Clea appearing in the movie or uh, Brother Voodoo appearing in the movie. So my vote, personally, is that it's going to be Brother Voodoo, as that is, you know, the issue is just more relevant to him and Strange's relationship. It's not just a meeting, it's their first meeting. Um, so that's like a kind of a, a big deal key issue for that, for their relationship. Um, and additionally, just kind of as a more personal point, um, at this point, there there is just so much, apparently, that we're going to be seeing going on in this movie as it is. I kind of don't want Clea to show up. Um, 
and I kind of, I mean, very much so. It's, it's clear right now that with everything else going on, she would not be given the time and grace, like, unless we're being led astray massively, she would not be given the time and grace that she needs to be, um, made important and given her due grace, you know? Um, so, so I'd rather they just wait at this point, tease her a little bit, maybe at the end, um, you know, end credit scene or something fun like that, but then show her off later when there is actually time. To add on to that a little bit as an additional point, um, there had been some rumors that Charlize Theron was in talks to play her, which I, that's the first casting rumor about Clea that I have actually been positive about. Um, so I, I am super gung-ho about that. However, it was also announced that Charlize Theron is going to be um, writing that Aqua, Aqua, what is Aqua Lad? The Jackson Hyde, um, she's going to be producing the Jackson Hyde project for HBO Max, uh, I believe a movie or a show. Um, so that's obviously a Warner and this being kind of literally on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um not really sure if those are two things she could do at the same time. Probably. Um, but it kind of also makes me think, you know, if she did get the clear role and she's going to be doing this at the same time, like, please don't make her a severe background, irrelevant character. Cause again, sh she needs to be given her due graces. And uh, like at this point with everything in the comics, she's owed a very well done MCU arc appearance, whatever it may be. But, um, I don't think they'll do it right if they do it right now. So my vote is that it's for Brother Voodoo, which I think we had had some rumors on anyway in the past. Um, it, it makes sense, right? Brother Voodoo showing up being this historical friend of importance um, for for Strange. I think I think that would be a really cool thing to see. And he's also a really cool character to bring in to... Uh, kind of brought in the magical realm, especially with uh, Scarlet Witch in there. And they have their, you know, they obviously know each other too in the comics. Um, I, I think that would be really awesome. That's just another step into the magical earthers, you know? The next topic is trans representation in DC media. Before we get into this, I will give you a quick terminology lesson just in case you need it. Cause I know that there are a fair amount of people who still don't know the correct terminology or haven't figured that quite out yet uh, are still exploring. Um, so I will, I will just give a generic, generic lesson to anyone listening. And that is that, uh, transgender is the term when you're talking about trans folks, um, not transsexual, no, and not tranny. That is completely not correct either. It is transgender or just trans. Um, if, when somebody says somebody is a trans woman, that is a assigned male at birth person who is a, not, who is transitioning to be female. So that is what trans woman is. Um, an assigned male at birth obviously being, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, they were assigned male at birth without getting into other terminology there. Um, and then trans man, of course, being the opposite of that, being someone who was assigned female at birth, who is transitioning to be a man. Um, I don't think this is a term that I actually have planned for this whole talk, but uh, cis, in case that's something that goes around, it's not a negative term, it's not a positive term, it's just a generic description term. Uh, it is just a person who is the gender that they were assigned at birth. 
uh, otherwise known as. They were just the, they or the gender that they physically, visually appear to be, um, you know, through traditional standards of gender determination. I am a cis woman, you know, I am what's female on my birth certificate, and I am female. So it's it's not it's just a descriptor. Also, these terms all involve gender identity, not sexuality. Um, there is nothing sexuality related to this this terminology, transgender. Um, or trans woman or trans man or cis. None of that is sexuality. That is all gender related. Gender identity. So getting that out of the way now. Um, son of Kalel number 13, which we've talked about obviously before for a lot of reasons. It is going to bring the character of Nia Nal, aka Dreamer, who is a trans woman from uh, the Supergirl CW show. They're bringing her to the DCU. Back in 2019, her character made LGBTQ plus history as the first transgender superhero on television. Now, if you're looking for the solicitation for Son of Kalel number 13, it says... It's the dramatic DC Universe debut of Dreamer, when every hero on Earth is threatened by Henry Be- Henry Bendix, which I still laugh about because it's obviously a play on Bendis, right? <laughs> Henry Bendix's machinations. It's a race against time for the Dreamer to warn Superman before it happens. Again, Superman being John Kent, not Kal-El. But will this mysterious new ally's premonition become a nightmare for Jonathan Kent? Question mark. Oh, at the end of it. I thought there was going to be more. Um, Dreamer's powers are, I believe, she just dreams um, the future. I could be wrong about that. If you know about that, let me know because I forgot to actually check that one. Uh, And she is not to be confused with Beautiful Dreamer, who is a Kirby New Gods character at DC. Uh, well, not New Gods. She's, uh, I guess, yeah, yeah, she's in the New Gods. Um, so not to be confused with her. Two different characters. Um, but for this Son of Kalel number 13, we have actress and transgender activist Nicole Maines, who will be co-writing the story, along with Tom Taylor, the regular writer, uh, introducing her own Supergirl character, because she did play Nia Nal on the Supergirl show, introducing her to the DCU. Maines also penned a story for last year's DC Pride 2021 one-shot, which featured the character's first comic book appearance, though that story was set pretty firmly in the CW Supergirl universe. Maines also wrote an introduction for this year's DC Pride 2022 one-shot, which will be coming out in June. Tom Taylor and Maines have uh, a couple of things to say on this from Taylor. He says... I'm so excited to work with Nicole Maines to bring Dreamer from the screen to the pages of Superman, Son of Kal-El, to the DC comic universe. And to thank all the people at DC who have championed Dreamer and who recognize the importance of this powerful trans superhero in this time. What Maines says is, John Kent and Nia Nal are two characters that have a lot in common, both as superheroes with the weight of the world on their shoulders and as young people with impossibly big shoes to fill. Weaving their stories together for Superman, Son of Kal-El, with Tom was a complete treasure, and there is only a little pun intended when I say that Superman and Dreamer make for a brilliant new dream team. She also says... Back in early 2020, we didn't know how much longer the Supergirl series was going to go for or or if we could do a season 7 or not. My editors on my editor on 
My editor on that had also been working with Tom and had been interested in bringing him and I and said him and I and consequently John and Nia together for Superman Son of Kal-El. So when I got an email in December asking to set up a meeting, I of course said yes. After that very first conversation, I knew that this was going to be the perfect place to bring Dreamer into the main DCU. This is arguably one of the hardest times to be a young trans person right now, specifically because of the targeted legislation coming from our lawmakers. Because of this, it's invaluable to give these kids an actual protector, someone who sees them, someone who is them. I don't think any reasonable person can doubt that trans kids are already superheroes. Son of Kal-El has, as I've mentioned, already been in the news a fair amount since its publication, and I've talked about it a fair amount here as well. First, it was for being the not-Clark Superman series, John Kent aged up being Superman, the one Superman who is there on Earth. And then it was for being the place where Superman, aka Still John, was announced as being bisexual, and now continuing the trend of progression with Dreamer's addition to the DC comic universe. Now we have the future of DC Entertainment, uh, headlining that Warner Brothers Discovery is or overhauling or exploring overhauling uh, an overhaul of DC Entertainment. Wow, that I couldn't get that one out. Uh, this move would potentially affect the DC feature film development in Warner Brothers Pictures Group, the streaming series at Warner Brothers Television, and the creative arm within DC proper all in an effort to have the disparate elements more closely aligned in order to maximize the value of the superhero stable. Well, of their superhero stable. And when I say Warner Discovery, Warner Brothers Discovery, there's I mentioned it before, Warner Brothers and Discovery had merged. Um, it was a $43 million deal. Uh, before that merger, David Zaslov, who is the CEO of the combined companies, vetted candidates. You know what? I'm going to check that dollar amount. Yeah, I thought so. It's billion, not million. I was going to say, that is not a lot of money <laughs> in this day and age, I mean, for this amount of what we're dealing with here. Anyway, let's start that over. So it was a $43 billion deal. Okay, gotcha. Uh, but before the, the before the merger closed, David Zaslaus, who is, as I was saying, the combined CEO of uh, the combined, the, C oh, the CEO of the combined companies, we're going to get this right. Uh, he vetted candidates with experience in creating and nurturing blockbuster intellectual property with the goal of potentially finding someone to serve as a creative and strategic czar similar to what Marvel has with Kevin Feige. Candidates included Emma Watts, who is a former top film executive at 20th, 20th Century Studios and Paramount, but it does not appear that Watts will take the job. One insider suggested that Zaslav was less interested in finding a creative guru and more eager in to hire someone who had the type of business background needed to keep all the different factions at DC working more harmoniously. Um... You know, they say business background. I would argue that it isn't a business background that they need. Uh, it would be something, I mean, it's universe management, right? Which isn't that editorial experience. Very different from business background. Um, I feel like you'll need a business person and then a universe management person. I don't know. I don't know how all these things work. I'm just reading the article. 
Uh, again, David Zaslav believes the success of this merger, one that has left the company very highly leveraged, will rest in no small part on unlocking the full potential of the DC Comics universe of characters. Discovery insiders believe that although DC has achieved cinematic success with recent films such as Aquaman and the Batman, it lacks a coherent creative and brand strategy. Discovery believes that several top-shelf characters such as Superman have been left to languish and need to be revitalized. They also believe that projects like Todd Phillips' Joker ugh, are a shining example of how second-build characters from DC Library can and should be exploited. Harley Quinn by Marco Robbie being another example. You can see more from the Variety article below if you would like more details. Um, it's, it's a pretty straightforward idea, I think. We also have news on the Wonder Twins casting. We talked about the Wonder Twins movie coming from HBO Max before, and now we have two actors who will be taking up the main characters. It is KJ Appa and Isabel May. Uh, KJ is Archie from Riverdale, and Isabel is question mark from 1883, which I have not seen. I watched a few episodes of Riverdale. It was extremely dramatic. There has been a little bit of an up upset um, about this this uh, casting because in the animated show they were played by Hispanic actors and drawn very specifically to be Latinx. Uh, casting them as white actors has brought on this bit of upset emotions for a lot of fans, which honestly I do understand. Uh, but let's play devil's advocate for a little minute here. Um, was them looking brown a specific factor in their characterization? No. But what it comes down to is this it is it, in this day and age of having had history basically told only from a white perspective and fiction ultimately the same taking away what little characters of color representation there is you know even if they're aliens who cares uh, taking that that bit of representation that is still there, taking that away from our fictional worlds is not really a good look. Um, if two, if the two of them, you know, if they blow it out of the park acting, great, good for them. Uh, but I know that no matter what, a lot of brown folks are out there right now feeling just a little bit jaded at this bit of representation of two brown aliens in a white world being taken away. The Wonder Twins previously appeared on Smallville, uh, which they were also white actors there, but I, I I don't think anybody's using Smallville as positive comparative material. Uh, who are the Wonder Twins? They are... I, I do enjoy Smallville, so, it's not, so I jest. Uh, the Wonder Twins are... Um, they first appeared in Hanna-Barbera's which I, I love to say Hanna-Barbera because Santa-Barbera. Hanna-Barbera's American animated television series, The All-New Super Friends Hour. Uh, their first comic appearance was in Super Friends number 7 in 1977. In the animated show, um, DC comic book legends Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman returned to their, returned to their fight for justice, this time joined by shape-shifting teens, uh, the Wonder Twins, along with apparently their space monkey Gleek. Um, this is a show that I have never seen. Um, my... I know it's I know it's kind of an older animated show, but there was a lot of reruns of these things 
um, Saturday morning cartoons and such that uh, I know my husband is very familiar with the Wonder Twins and with this show. Uh, I am not. I was raised on <laughs> PBS Kids, so... Uh, on that note, not not that note, but the the, the Wonder Twins shape shifting note. Um, I would not be surprised if they do have the the two kids kind of shape shifting in an homage of some sort to their original look at some port some point early on in the in the forthcoming movie. Because especially because of people having wanted them to be somewhat brown. Um, put in a different actor for a scene, you know, they obviously don't have them put a freaking makeup on their faces. Oh my God, that would be horrible. Um, <laughs> they can do it. They, they can shape shift and have another person come in for a scene and do a little homage to the OG animated semi-brown alien Wonder Twins. The news for Constantine, the project coming from J.J. Abrams and his bad robot. Um, it's a bit of news, a bit of rumors, a bit of a mixed bag. So um, it, this, this was first announced over a year ago at this point, um, and it is set to start filming later this year in 2022. Uh, the movie is apparently finally getting some footage. Uh, Constantine movie is what we're talking about here again. Uh, it's finally getting some footing. I think I said footage there. Uh, with some producers and screenwriters aboard. Notably, Guy Bolton is attached to write and direct. Uh, working title of this is apparently Chimney, which I think is kind of clever, as it is um, probably a reference to London or smoking a bunch of cigarettes, because that's kind of what Constantine does. Um, it will apparently feature, quote, body horror, supernatural, and urban action, what, in the streets of London, unquote. <laughs> urban action? I guess I, I guess I understand what they mean, but this is kind of funny phrasing. <laughs> oh, there is a casting site as well that describes the Constantine series um, as a series that, quote, follows a young man whose entire world is upended when a chance encounter with a young girl pulls him into the dark and treacherous world of the occult, unquote. Um, not only will this iteration of Constantine be in his 20s-ish, you know, apparently, uh, but the production is looking to also cast a um, actor of color of some sort as the new Hellblazer, which is Constantine's, like, magic hero name. He's not really a hero, but his, like, his, his, uh, work name. We'll say work name. Um, I, I, um, I like that idea. It's fine. It would be interesting. Um, I think a better way of saying that would be that they're blind casting, um, because then it would probably make people be less... A, cer a certain audience be less offended by their casting a character of color. We know that someone out there <clears throat> is going to get offended by that, them saying that. Um, so if they had said blind casting, it probably would have, um, probably would go over with people better, but I, I like the whole idea. I, I like what they're going with it. Um, the studio is also looking for a character named Akara. I have no idea how to pronounce that. I'm sorry. I think it's Akara. It looks like Akara. Um, who is going to be a 10-year-old Cambodian girl said to be the heart of the story. Akara's grandfather, who is called Pitch, will also play a role in the series, and Constantine's encounter with the young girl will kickstart the plot. The various sites speculate that Akara might be Astra Logue. 
I think that's how you say that, from the comics, whose alias is apparently Starchild. She was the daughter of the notorious, quote, sex and drugs magician and magical club owner Alex Logue. Throughout her life, Astra had been sexually abused by her father and his friends. In 1978, a fear elemental took possession of her, and a group of amateur occultists commonly referred to as the Newcastle Crew, led by John Constantine, attempted to exorcise the entity from her body. The exorcism failed horribly, however, when Nurgle was summoned and Astra's spirit was consigned to hell. This happens in the 1988 Hellblazer series, issues 8 through 11. If you're wondering who Nurgle is, he is a Babylonian god-turned-demon and one of John Constantine's most dangerous enemies. Decades later in the comics, on a visit to hell, John was offered the salvation of Astra's soul in exchange for his own by Boer, the demon of damned children, who was working for the first of the fallen. John outwitted him by conjuring a demon version of himself and sending that to hell instead, still being able to save Astra's soul. Badang badoom. Uh, also, Bailey Tippin apparently played Astra in the Astra Astra, I don't know, night uh, NBC series Constantine, which was um, I never finished it. I think it was pretty good. I honestly don't remember very much from it. Uh, but she was depicted as, as the, the, well, the site says African-American. She's, she's black. Uh, she was the young girl that John failed to save in Newcastle, damning her to hell um, and his own soul as a result. She regularly appears in haunting flashbacks for John. And just to clarify, um, the African-American versus black, not all black people are from Africa. Um, and due to slavery, a fair amount of uh, American black people have no idea if they are from Africa or where they're from. So um, that's why I made that clarification. Moving on. <laughs> I believe it was on one of the last episodes I talked about Sean Gordon Murphy's Murphyverse and how with the... Um, with White Knight Beyond being starting up now, um, he's he had also talked about doing a Red Hood, and we weren't sure what it was. Was it a series? Was it a single issue? Now we have the information for it here. So this is obviously going to be Murphy's take, his non-canon take on Under the Red Hood. It is canon to his Murphyverse at DC Black Label. Um, so here is what all the solicit is announcing and what it's got to say. It is Batman White Knight Presents Red Hood number one. It is up two issues. It comes out in July, so we can assume the second will come out in August. It'll be written by Sean Gordon Murphy as well as Clay McCormack with art by Simone DeMeo, which is super exciting because Simone DeMeo is freaking fantastic um, and I think pretty in line with the kind of world you would expect to see in this series. Uh, covers will be, of course, by Sean Murphy himself. We'll also have variant covers by Olivia Coppel um, and a 1 of 25 variant by Simone DeMeo and a 1 of 50 by Olivia Coppel, which I think are all just the same one without writing on them. Um, what it says is, The world of Batman White Knight continues to expand in this exciting new miniseries. With things heating up in, in Neo-Gotham, Jason Todd revisits his post-Robin past to find the, the one ally he believes will help him turn the tide in the battle against Derek Powers. Again, this is taking place 
um, in line with the uh, White Knight Beyond series. Um, we did see Jason there and he had that brief panel revealing that he is going out as Red Hood. So this is the two issue tie in to the whole universe that times in with what we're seeing in Batman in the White Knight Beyond series. Um, it's just the, the brief Red Hood bit that we're going to go over here because as we spoke about before, um, Jason Todd is the first Robin to Batman in the Murphyverse. Dick Grayson is the second. So here's the rest of the solicitation. It says, Bruce Wayne is Batman. Four words that saved Jason's life and destroyed his future forever. Banished by his mentor and damaged by the Joker, which you can see that all this backstory in White Knight Beyond, number one. The former Robin is left to become something different, something stronger. A relentless force for justice in the city. Red Hood. With nobody to answer to, he walks the dangerous line between hero and villain. That is, until he meets Gan, a local girl from East Backport who needs his help to save her neighborhood from a super criminal terrorizing its citizens, and she's willing to fight alongside him whatever it takes. Ah, oh, that sounds so good. So she's she's probably not going to be any version of Orphan um, if her name is Gan and local to East Backport, blah blah blah. Um... Probably not really his take on Orphan. It's, I, I would want him to confirm that to really say that for sure. Uh, but once again, if you are new to Sean Gordon Murphy's Murphyverse, here is how it all goes down. Then in 2017, he released Batman White Knight, um, which was an eight-issue series that went into 2018. Batman is morally questionable. The Joker has dissociative identity disorder, basically. And his other personality, Jack, is like super... Well, he's pretty awesome, honestly. And he runs for mayor of Gotham with the legitimate goal of saving the city. And then we have uh, Joker's identity as long as, uh, as well as Batman's mistrust of Jack are the villains pretty much uh, then we have batman curse of the white knight came out in 2019 eight issues that ran into 2020 and this was where the joker identity finds a way to overcome jack's control and leads batman and bruce wayne on a journey to discover the wayne family's greatest secret and greatest shame it's a long story read it yourself basically the waynes aren't waynes and then we had uh, last year, well, it started in 2020, it was six issues, and it was Batman White Knight Presents Harley Quinn, which took place, I believe, three years after its predecessor, maybe less than that. Um, and this was obviously the series taking place from Harley Quinn's point of view, or she, with the help of Poison Ivy and her girlfriend Neo Joker, who was the... Harley Quinn, Joker, Stan, wannabe kind of introduced in the previous series, uh, them as well as Duke and an imprisoned Bruce Wayne, because he got arrested for being Batman, help the GCD, GCPD track down a local serial killer with a certain specific flair. And of course now we have Batman, Curse of the White, or sorry, Batman, White Knight, White Knight Beyond, Beyond the White Knight. Oh my god. Batman Beyond the White Knight. The title's killing me. Um, and that is, of course, his retelling of Batman Beyond. First issues out. It is incredible, as everything else from the Murphyverse is. So I highly recommend that. And I definitely recommend, especially if you're keeping up with the Murphyverse, to check out these two issues, July and August. Uh, the White Knight presents Red Hood 1 and 2. 
I'm sure plenty of people are really excited to hear about the Love and Thunder trailer. I was, well, teaser, I guess. It was under two minutes. I guess you're going to have to call it a teaser. Um, I myself, of course, woke up uh, yesterday morning and was excited to see that as something pretty much immediate when I opened up my phone. Um, so I finally, I, I watched it. I really excited for this. Um, as down as I am about Multiverse of Madness at times, my excitement for Love and Thunder makes up for that. Um, and oh boy, let's wait, oh, wait until the end of this little discussion of Love and Thunder and I have the stupidest best theory, okay? Um, but it's like, it's almost perfect. So, so it's kind of almost got ground to it. Um, but it's also like literally why, but it's so cool. <laughs> So we'll start off here, um, as we should, with the official plot of the movie as Marvel has announced it. It says, quote, The film finds... <laughs> it's not a film, it's a movie. The film finds Thor on a journey unlike anything he's ever faced, a quest for inner peace. But his retirement is interrupted by a galactic killer known as Gore, the God Butcher, who seeks the extinction of the gods. To combat the threat, Thor enlists the help of King Valkyrie, Korg, and ex-girlfriend Jane Foster, who, to Thor's surprise, is inexplicably, inexplicably wields his magical hammer, <laughs> magical hammer, Mjolnir as the mighty Thor. Together they embark upon a harrowing cosmic adventure to uncover the mystery of the God Butcher's vengeance and stop him before it's too late. Um, that's the general thing now. Let's let's walk through the trailer for a little bit, um, more or less. The music over the trailer as it gets going is of course Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine. Taika Waititi continues to understand music and film brilliantly on that note, a couple of years ago, I talked about um, James Gunn as positively as I do now, Taika Waititi. God, I hope that's not going to be a pattern where he does something super disappointing and just like, suddenly I'm like, wow, he's really not that good. <laughs> James Gunn has some good movies, but he's like got some very problematic habits and stuff, but um, he's also... Oh, well, this isn't about James Gunn. This is about Taika. So I, I really, really love Taika's, like, sense of humor and sense of morality and importance that he puts into his stuff. Um, and obviously, musical taste. I just hope that that does not end up stabbing me in the back at some point. Um, so in the trailer, it, it starts off with this really cool, um, segment of Thor running. It's, it starts young Thor and then young adult Thor and then adult Thor running through the, the forest of Asgard, shit, Asgard. Um, he, it, it's just, you, you just have to watch it. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> it looks really good. Um, uh, he's got a little bit of over narration where he talks about where he's basically going soul searching. Um, he buries plants, more likely the axe, uh, Stormbreaker in the ground, as it seems as Fat Thor. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, he is at this era of looking for peace, looking for meaning. Uh, we see that he does CrossFit to lose the weight, um, which. I think the uh, the hat he was wearing, if I recall, it said something about Strongest Avenger. 
Um, but the, I just thought it was kind of fun. The the type, the font that Avenger was written in Avengers was like the OG Avengers, like cartoony Avengers number one from back in the day it, font. It was really cute. Um, I thought it was a cool reference because it's definitely not what the Avengers font looks like now. Uh, bits of him and the Guardians making a fool of himself with them. He actually says in the narration, my superhero day superheroing days are over. We see Thor's ship with his magical goats names Tooth Nasher and Tooth Grinder, uh, which I believe are just MC, uh, not MC, but like Marvel Comics things. I don't think that's, that's in mythology. Correction, it kind of is. <laughs> um, I'm not going to try and pronounce how they spell them but it's a uh, old Norse word meaning thin teeth or one that has gaps between the teeth and then the other goat is another Norse old Norse word that means teeth grinder or one that grinds teeth so tooth grinder and tooth gnasher it's, it's pretty close right but anyway, they uh, they pull his ship and they are going to, um, they're leaving New Asgard, sorry, leaving New Asgard. And you can see that uh, Valkyrie, who is king, and Korg are on board. Uh, Olympus is the next thing that you see, and honestly, it looks phenomenal. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit surprised how well they pulled off what I would picture, you know, based on the comics and stuff, the stuff with bits of Olympus that we've seen, it looks really good. Very gold and white and blue, um, which is obviously incredibly appropriate. <laughs> uh, we see that, uh, well, to explain, obviously Olympus is the, the, the one, one of the god realms that exists within a pocket dimension um, in the Earth area. Uh, it's accessible um, in the comics through Mount Olympus, which they will likely change in the MCU. Um, seeing them take off from New Asgard, maybe they're headed off to do some space stuff to go across space to find them. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's related to Stormbreaker being able to open the Bifrost. I don't know. Uh, we also see Russell Crowe's Zoof, Zoof, Zeus waving to the other gods of Olympus. He is a performer, really, more than anything, and we're probably going to get him to see brutally murdered, murdered, murdered by gore um, in this movie, which will be, I mean, based on Zeus and Russell Crowe, and I've, I have a feeling they're going to make him, like, a character you want to see get killed. I don't know. That's just a quick theory there. Um, the quartet of heroes visiting Olympus seems to be King Valkyrie, Korg, and the two Thors, which is suggesting that Jane shows up as Thor pretty early in things. Um, but Thor is back to being buff in his new look already, so... Uh, she shows up in Act 2, maybe? Act 1 being him setting himself back up and finding out that this problem is happening with Gore. Act 2, she shows up and they go into Olympus and stuff, right? That I feel like that's about right. Uh, we see Thor making out with some blue-haired pirate lover, which I honestly I didn't bother to look up who that was. She's probably just some random person, like uh, the, the random aliens that Kirk had in in Star Trek through the years and through the movies and stuff. Um, 
we see the new armor that Thor has a little bit. Um, it looks like a Masterson-era Thor armor, so I think my theory of Eric Masterson himself showing up as Thor is not going to be a thing. New Asgard is a tourist trap, which... Surprising, but not really. Um, I I think this is likely not to the king's liking or design, so I'm curious who... Um, well, how, I guess, that really came to be. Who who, who was it that, like, made new... Was it just because, like, oh, you know, superheroes, let's go. It just, like, naturally kind of became that way. I don't know. I'd, I'd be very curious to see how they explain that. Obviously, I said Valkyrie is king of Asgard, which is now new Asgard here. And Meek is her little security guy, or possibly gal um you can actually look it up meek is getting a pop for this movie where he's he, they i'll say they they've got the like two little hand swords and the weird little blocky feet um but then they're wearing like a secretary's dress suit it's not pants suit it's a, it's a skirt so <laughs> so uh, i think it's hilarious it's it's freaking hilarious and they they put this weird little alien grub dude in a dress like that how do you not find that funny? <laughs> um, but in that same scene, uh, you can see that King Val does not seem to be too fond of her diplomatic duties. We see Thor with Korg on what looks like a return trip to Sakaar. You can see all the rubble and stuff all around them. And it looks like the scene with Thor and Quill is them probably parting ways. If you notice, Mantis has a piece of tech between her antennae on her forehead, which is likely going to end up being a tease for whatever we'll see her doing in either the Christmas special or volume three, because I think the Christmas special comes out. Yeah, it comes out this year, so it'll come out first. I think, yeah. Um, there is some kind of battle or party um, that they're at. It's more likely a battle. Um, and then the hammer comes through, stuck back together, because remember, Hela broke it up, right? Um, it is, it's summoned to Jane's hands. Um, well, the other Thor, because, you know, it's not confirmed. We, we know it's Jane. Um, and I swear, if she ends up looking more buff than She-Hulk does in her show, I am going to track somebody down and have a very intense word with them. Um, there's been some really great comic panel comparison on Twitter and all over online, really. Um, one being this, this, um, panel of Thor looking over the dead body of Falagar, who this character is, this giant beastie boy laying there on the ground. Falagar is a powerful patron god who won the Tournament of the Immortals. He was a friend of Thor's before Gore killed the gods as part of his rampage. Um, the panel that you see floating around being compared to literally one-to-one -one with the addition of Korg. Um, really just striking similarity to the comic panel. Um, that is pulled from the comics of Jason Aaron's Thor, God of Thunder, number three, uh, where Thor obviously finds Falagar, the behemoth, dead. Um, and looking at that, it becomes very hard to argue against paying comic artists for their stuff being used in the MCU. Hmm? They're literally like a one-to-one -one there. That's, that's something not any of you came up with. <laughs> 
If you're wondering about the Mighty Thor, uh, it is Jane Foster. She is the Mighty Thor in the comics, and it has been confirmed that she will be the Mighty Thor in the MCU as well. They even got Natalie Portman to come back and play her, getting buff and all of that in preparation, which is super exciting. In the comics, when Jane first takes up the hammer, it's because Thor has become unworthy through learning a secret in the original Sin event. The secret was Gore was right, meaning that the thing that Gore said to Thor previously, that he, you know, was not great god that he intends on being and blah blah, whatever it all was, uh, was, was correct. Um, Gore is appearing in Love and Thunder, being played by Christian Bale. Um, so my question, my, my, my thoughts there, will he and Thor already have a history or will this be their first meeting? Um, I, I kind of feel like they might have to have a, like, he's at least heard of Gore, right? Like that, that would make sense. Uh, but back there, you know, after, in the original Sin, Thor, when hearing Gore was right, he drops the hammer on the moon, because that's where they are, and he can't pick it back up again. At the end, when everybody's gone, an unknown female figure picks it up, changing the inscription from he be worthy to she be worthy, which now is they be worthy, just to cover all bases. It is not revealed in the comics who the new Thor is for a pretty long time. It's even kind of falsely proved not to be Jane, as Jane is undergoing intense chemotherapy at the time for cancer, which is a really tragic storyline in itself. After a good long while, though, it's revealed that she actually is, in fact, the mighty Thor. But to make matters really not great, every time she transforms into Thor, the effect of the chemotherapy on her cancerous cells is walked back completely like it never happened. So each time she takes up the hammer, when she puts it back down, she's one step closer to dying of terminal cancer. And the cancer does kill her in time. But when she walks to the gates of Valhalla, Odin himself approaches her and offers her life renewed as a gift for her volunteer efforts and sacrifice as the mighty Thor. Later on in the, War of, in the War of the Realms event, Jane is forced to pick up the hammer again and afterwards gains a new hero-like title, Valkyrie, because the entire Valkyrie had been slaughtered in that event, honestly. Uh, that is where we are in the comics now, with her as uh, the sole remaining Valkyrie, in addition to Runa. Now, on the MCU Valkyrie and Runa, which is a thing that I've been like tumbling around in my head for a good while now, um, I always had seen Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, because remember, she is unnamed. We just call her Valkyrie, which is her position, not her name. It's her title, not her name. Um, Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, where she had at the end of Thor Ragnarok, she walks out with the silver and white outfit and the blue cape. I always saw that as a spin on the comic book Valkyrie Brunhilde's second comic book look, which was created by Clea, which was a white uh, and gold accent look with a blue cape, just like that Tessa Thompson look. Then we have Runa enter, who was for a good while a new unnamed Valkyrie in the comics, whose look looks entirely inspired by Tessa Thompson's unnamed Valkyrie in the MCU. She was kind of a dark outfit, similar to the original outfit we saw Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie in, um, but had that blue cape again. More recently in the comics, Runa was revealed to be a uh, one of the original Valkyries, OG team, 
and the original owner of Yarnborn, which is the axe that Thor now, well, no, it's not Stormbreaker, is the axe that Thor now uses in the MCU. Um, so I'm kind of thinking that they might end up revealing some of King Valkyrie's backstory to be possibly in line with Runa. Um, I'm not sure. What do you think? Now for the Beta Ray Bill theory. <laughs> that's, that's my crazy stupid theory. It's a Beta Ray Bill theory. Um, and it's not necessarily mine. I saw it on Twitter. Um, so the, uh, in the comics... It took three versions of Thor to beat Gore, which might sound kind of ridiculous. Uh, it was not the mighty Thor. It was young Thor, now time Thor, and King Thor, who was much, much older with his like gray beard, basically looks like his father Odin, as we know him. Um, and it took the three of them together to defeat Gore. Okay? Um... We have two Thors, as it is, right? Odin's son, Jane Foster. We know they're going to be in the movie. We know they're going to be battling Gore. Batery Bill, he's a Corbinite. He's got the face of a horse. If you've seen the face horse guy, horse face guy with the who looks like Thor in his outfit, that's Batery Bill. Um... Galactus destroyed the Corbinite race, and he was the last Corbinite, I believe. Um, you should read the Beta Ray Bill series, uh, which came out last year by um, uh, Daniel Warren Johnson. He wrote and drew it. Friggin' fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely phenomenal. Um, but for a lot of reasons, you know, obviously, a lot of fans, um, myself and my husband included, really want to see Beta Ray Bill in uh in the thor movies which you know we've seen the tease of him where it was like uh it was the statue of him on sakar right it was on their like tower they had pictures of their former champions or statues of their former champions one of them was beta ray bill so he's out there he exists um is it possible that he's gonna show up in the third act as a big surprise, like the Spider-Man, you could say, and help save the day. Da -da -da. Three to, to kill him in the comics. Three to do it in the movie. We've got three. Okay, I'm, I'm really trying. I know it's a stretch, but I really want to see Beta Ray Bill in the movies. Uh, there was a lot, you know, people thought that it was going to be Christian Bale. People thought that it was going to be, um, you know, Gladiator. Um, Zeus, whatever his name is. But there's there's been no literally no reason to to think that he's in this movie literally none besides these kinds of crazy off the wall please let me see beta ray bill in the mcu theories thank you that's been my ted doc now the comic book picks that we're going to talk about are from the 12th and the 13th of April. This is last week. We're going to talk Batcat 11, Immortal Red Sonia number 1, Electra number 100, and Rain number 4, with some brief less positive notes about X-Men 92 House of... I'm guessing that's 92 number 1, Midnight Rose, and then a very brief thing sort of on... Well, this isn't even last week's book. This is from a few weeks ago, X-Men Red. I finally read that. 
<laughs> so we'll talk about that very briefly as well. Uh, starting off though with Batcat 11 of 12, here we are coming down to the end of it. Uh, it is revealed in this issue that Andrea's son, Andrea being the phantasm, uh, was a baby that the Joker had, uh, which she, I guess, found him with after the events of the Phantasm movie. He used the baby to get away, making her choose the baby or him. She saved the baby, he gets away. Throughout the kid's life, he would ask about his dad. Of course, she would never tell him, but after the kid found letters between her and Bruce Wayne, he put together various assumptions, of course. That's why he was in Gotham when the Joker killed him. He must have heard about this kid asking around, saying that he's Bruce Wayne's son and Andrea's, <laughs> and Andrea's son. He would have put it together and, in that sense, willingly killed what was likely his own son. However, um, now it's probably going to be clarified in the final issue, it is possibly also revealed that Andrea may have gone in some kind of fugue state and brought the Joker to kill some random family so that she could take their baby. Um, a bit unclear on that, but we'll see in the final issue how that gets clarified. Um, but in the in the future in the future present in the future timeline, Helena is helping her mother as you may have guessed. I don't know. She It looked like she was super, super against everything Catwoman was doing. Now it's revealed that she's actually helping hide her mother, who is, of course, wanted for the murder of the Joker. Even Dick Grayson comes and kind of tries to interrogate Helena in the cave, but she beats the shit out of him, honestly, and tells him to get out of her cave if he isn't there to take the cow. It's actually a very cool scene. I love this Helena. And then we have Selena, um back with her daughter mentions the first time that Bruce dresses up as Superman, which is at the fair, which we see in Tom King's Batman run. Really fantastic issue where Superman and, well, Bruce and Clark switch superhero outfits and their, um, their ladies do as well, Lois and Selina. It's a very cute issue. Um, Apparently, it becomes a tradition in the Wayne family and is kept up through Helena's childhood as we see a photo of Bruce dressed up as Superman with a young Helena. Really cute. Really excited for this last issue, which is uh, apparently supposed to have the marriage of Bruce and Selena at long friggin' last. Immortal Red Sonia number one, I didn't actually know was even a thing until it was out. And it's actually very good. Um, it is basically Red Sonia getting involved in Arthurian legend. In this story, she is kind of cursed with the chain link shirt that she wears. It contains, I guess, the spirit of King Arthur. Uh, when she comes upon a house known as the last house, a man inside turns out to be a gatekeeper for what lies beyond, which is apparently the next step in resurrecting Arthur. She fights him in his magical demonic form and beats him when the chainmail turns out to make her invulnerable, it would seem. This is by Dan Abnett and really honestly fantastic art by Alessandro Miracolo. Um, I have high hopes for this after this first issue. Sonia crossed with Arthurian legend. I mean, that sounds pretty much excellent. Sign me up. Electra number 100 was pretty good as well. The f main story was Electra versus Typhoid Mary, Typhoid Mary uh, by Anne Nocenti, who is the creator of Typhoid and one of the most notable writers for Electra and Matt. Um, I thought that Electra's outfit was really interesting. Um, it seems what 
to be um like a new outfit i guess it's black and red um with her hair in a like a thick black robe which i would really like to see them stick with i like that a lot um and this all seems to be in line with current canon that's what's going on in the comics where Electra, I guess, is stopping being Daredevil and Mary married Fisk, believe it or not. Um, and then, so that was a, that was a nice little story where they actually kind of end up teaming up by the end of it. Um, and then you have all 100 covers of the 100 issues of Electra Comics, which is a pretty cool thing to see all in those couple of pages. And the last couple of stories, one was Declan Shelby writes a story, uh, well, he writes and draws, I believe, a story of Matt and Electra dancing across rooftops and she stabs him in the shoulder in the end and he and runs off which is you know like her uh, it also has one that spoofs on Spidey super stories Calvin and Hobbes and then mini Marvels in rain number four the narration I think uh, at this point in the story has just as much importance to the events as the panels of art do because they often show completely different things Honeysuckle, who is the main character, finally makes it to her late girlfriend's house in Denver. She's greeted by a homophobe and finds Yolanda's father in the backyard dead. Someone tied him to the fence out back, letting the rain of crystal nails take him. That night, the homophobe sneaks in to kill Yolanda, but she gets to him first, tying him outside for the rain to take, just like his innocent victims. When he makes it home, sorry, when she makes it home, she's surprised to find that the kid and the cowboy from the other issues actually made it back to the kid's house safely. The visuals do end the issue on a high note, but the narration warns of more trouble to come. X-Men 92, House of 92, number one. Um, it's, it's Dawn of X. It's Hickman's Dawn of X with, um... Uh, or House and Powers, I guess. I don't really know how you want to say that. With the 92 X-Men specifically, I would say the, the animated nineties X-Men. Um, it's a bit too nineties for me, all bright colors and cartoons and nineties slang and stuff and bubblegum. Like, Ooh. um, and if you're wondering what the big like twist is, the character of Moira from Dawn of X is played by Jubilee. It's her role that, that takes the, uh, if she dies, the, the universal reset, that kind of thing. So it's whatever. I'm not too into it. Midnight Rose as well was a uh, story with super meh. Art though was completely, absolutely horrifyingly horrendous. So good stuff. Um, and the X-Men Red, which did not come out this week, but I'm talking about it because I finally read it, was actually better than expected. Uh, with the exception of I really, really don't like um, Abigail Brand, how they're doing her right now. I just don't like her. Um, I don't like Beast either, so I guess that makes sense because they were married at one point or together, whatever it was. But anyway, um, in this first issue, I did really like Magneto's building of the Autumn Palace and making of friends out there. I loved the idea of exploring more characters from Arako, of course, and Aurora, um, Storm, obviously, being the boss-ass bitch of Mars was very satisfying to see. Um, Vulcan scoops his powers from Sunspot, which was a fun little, like, power dynamic synergy thing, which Sunspot obviously did not mean to have happen. Um, and then you get, like, there's a fun, there's a couple of points that you get a fun little, like, insight to the Iraqi culture, like, 
somebody asks this Arako guy, you know, if he's going to help Sunspot in battle, and he says, help them battle, we only just met, I don't want to insult him. Because uh, that's the whole mindset of Arako, is just like that. <laughs> we see John Proudstar, who was recently resurrected, sticking up for his brother James, who he calls Jimmy. Um, it looks like he's going to be kind of a, a hothead, which we'll see how that goes. Um, and then there are nine seats of the Great Araki a rocky ring which i started to write a little bit about but it became very tedious and so i never mind scratch that off the list um but storm is uh at the end we find out storm is forming the brother brotherhood brotherhood of mutants which will be i assume krakoa based sorry Araco based and then possibly being mostly Araki mutants which would be pretty sick and we have the polls for this week, which DC Comics again come out the 19th today and everything else the 20th Wednesday. Um, for this first comic, again, we're going to be talking about the um, the solicitations of the ones that are number ones and also Catwoman and Lily City number three because it's a short little one and I really like that series, the final issue of it too. So, uh, but for this first one, I have to give a little bit of perspective preface. Um... Because this is involving a topic that I know many people are very, very, very adamantly against. Um, but the reason that they are so adamantly against that is genuinely because of miseducation. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to like tiptoe around this without being like super upfront and I don't want to startle anybody away. <laughs> um, but the 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 comic that i'm discussing here it's by uh brian posen who is an actor as well as comic book writer i believe he was on new girl let me do a quick google see what else he was on here uh he's a comedian he was on oh, it doesn't actually have new girl in this list comedian and actor he's he's like a friend of sarah silverman he's been on, he's been on a lot of her stuff uh oh he was on new girl ha i was right I guess he was in Steven Universe voicing, obviously. Um, he was in The Big Bang Theory. He was in, I guess, the main character in Uncle Nick. Um, I'm trying to find something that you would recognize him from. The Comedians of Comedy in 2005. Just Shoot Me, which was a 90s to 2003 show. Um, anyway, Brian Potion. Uh, apparently he had a Criminally Potion show. Is that still going? It might still be going. Google does not have an answer. Um, but yeah, so he's he's writing it alongside Gary Duggan, who does, of course, uh, the current X-Men series. Um, and then it's going to have art by Scott Koblish. Um, the, the, I, I still want to scare anybody off because it is something that is massively misunderstood, massively miseducated in, in schools and mistaught thanks to the, the friggin' D.A.R.E. program and um, a lot of stuff here that they're actually going to talk about um, <laughs> in the comic. And it is, I believe, a one-shot. So it's called The Secret History of the War on Weed. Um, again, Brian Posen, Jerry Duggan, Gary Duggan, sorry, and Scott Koblish. It says that they will reform Voltron, metaphorically only, from their days on Deadpool, also not appearing, to tell a true story and lost chapter from our nation's sad and failed war on drugs. I would just like to reiterate, this is a true story, and yes, our nation's war on drugs was sad and failed, or is sad and failed. 
Um, and I, <laughs> this is going back to the beginning of the D.A.R.E. program. The year is 1985. The first lady decides to crush Northern California cannabis farmers and deploys the biggest tool in the armed for forces. Scotch McTiernan, collectible first of many hilarious appearances. I guess, I don't know. I don't know if that's, I think this is actually, this part of it's not true. Um, if, it, if it weeds, we can kill it. Scotch puts his boots on the ground and humbled and does what he does best. But what happens when he gets high for the first time? This one shot has it all. Laughs, tears, heart, action, plus an activity page. A portion of the proceeds of this comic will be donated to, the, to organizations dedicated to helping casualties of America's immoral drug war. Um... You know, there are dudes, New York decriminalized weed and took that off people's records because you have dudes from the 90s who got caught with a thumbnail-sized piece of weed in a bag that probably wasn't worth even smoking because it was so shit back then. Um, and then they're still in jail for that. Why is that? That's insane. That is actual insanity. Um, and, and now that it's being legalized in so many places, these dudes and women are still in jail. Why? It's illegal now. You know, it's, and, you know, getting into more specific things is that alcohol is way more dangerous than marijuana is. Um, and the fact that there's so many legitimately positive, useful, helpful, oftentimes not life-saving, but quality of life-saving um, factors that come into this too. So, um, if you feel like it's really awkward that I'm mentioning this, I, I definitely urge you to be open-minded and to change your perspective of anybody who's pro anything like this is, uh, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're a smelly, dirty stoner and they sit around eating chips all day. And that's not actually accurate to very much at all in life, but, um, I, I definitely urge you to take a look. It's from Image Comics, and again, it is a one-shot. Moving on from that, Corollary Number 1 is coming as a four-issue series from Source Point Press by Adam Rose and Robert Ahmad. It says, In a galaxy filled with twin moons, twin suns, and twin planets, everything comes in twos, even the people. And if your twin dies, so do you. This is the way it's always been. So when Captain Andromeda's twin loses her life in a far-off military battle, and Captain... Andromeda herself does not die, needless to say, the universe demands answers. Answers the captain is willing to give to the highest bidder, of course. This is Corollary, a four-issue bombastic sci-fi romp. Spider-Gwen, Into the Gwenverse, or just Spider-Gwen Gwenverse, I guess, number two, uh, by Tim Seeley and Jody Nishajima. I think that it's very weird. It's written by a middle-aged man, but moving on from that, this issue is going to have Ghost Spider and Thor Gwen teaming up with Super Soldier Captain America Gwen. Uh, and then there's going to be apparently another evil Gwen, and it's all good fun. Uh, Wonder Woman, tr oh, sorry, Trial of the Amazons Wonder Girl number two is the Trial of the Amazons part six, which is continued from Wonder Woman 786 and will be continued in the final issue, Trial of the Amazons number two. It's by Joelle Jones and Joelle Jones with Joelle Jones and Jordi Belair. <laughs> I bet you didn't see that coming. Not only, um, <clears throat> excuse me, not to, uh, to get kind of snooty or anything, but I, I um, haven't read all of this as well, but I've been a little bit disappointed 
well, quite disappointed by what I have read of Trial of the Amazons. Um, it was announced as DC's first Wonder Woman-centric event since, like, the 80s, but that's not actually what it is, is it? It's an event among the Wonder Woman books. It's not a DC event. Just like they told us that Death Metal was going to be a Wonder Woman story, and it definitely wasn't. Um, and also, the, the, does the first female-centric event in ages have to be about them fighting amongst each other? I get that they're Amazons, but amongst each other... <laughs> Catwoman Lonely City number 3 is the final issue coming from Cliff Chang, all by his lonesome. It's from DC Black Label, and it says, Catwoman had assembled the crew of a lifetime for her heist of the Batcave, and everything was going to plan, until it wasn't. When tragedy and disaster strike, she's got to find a way to land on her feet, but as her need for answers grows stronger and more desperate, she might be prepared to make a deal with the devil himself. DC Black Label again, as I said. Faithless 3, number 3 of 6. Because there's going to be 666 six, six issues, get it? Because 1 is 6 issues, 2 was 6 issues, 3 is 6 issues. But um, but um. Goes along with what it's all about, so hey. Uh, Brian Ezzarillo and Maria LaVey are the creative team here. This is from Boom Studios, and this is decidedly not for kids. Bolero number four of five comes this week from Wyatt Kennedy and Luana Vecchio. Uh, it is an image comic and again, not for kids. Animal Castle number five is by Xavier Dorson and Felix Delep. It is the final issue from Ablaze. Homesick Violets number 14 by Dan Waters and Caspar Wingard. Issue 15 will be the final issue in June. Wonder Woman Evolution number six of eight comes by Stephanie Phillips, Mike Hawthorne, and Stefano Raphael. And finally, Catwoman number 42 by Teeny Howard and Nico Leon with a Jenny Frizen cover that will make you need a minute. Getting into the media, other media portion of the episode, we're going to talk Moon Knight, Young Justice, and finally, the Doctor Who special, which is going to be more educational about stuff we see in the show and then about the show itself. Uh, but again, starting off here with Moon Knight, episode three premiered last Wednesday called The Friendly Type. In this issue, Mark and Layla have signed this issue, dear God. In this episode, Mark and Layla have gone to Egypt in order to prevent the resurrection of Amit. Notably, they say here that Layla is from Egypt and apparently has deep family ties in the area, so she doesn't want people finding out who she is or that she's there. It's also revealed that Layla has been to Madripoor, which was mentioned in Falcon and the Winter Soldier as well, which adds a lot to her curiosity or curiousness. Madripoor being one of the comics' classic lawless lands, I guess, where all manner of scum and villainy pass through to do dirty deeds and make dirty deals. Back in the show, Mark ends up having to fight a bunch of dudes in Cairo, one of whom happens to be wearing a jean jacket with the face of Pharaoh Ramatut, who is a version of Kang who ruled Egypt as a man out of time. This likely is not a tease for Kang showing up on this show. I'd be surprised if he did. Maybe if he's posing as Amit or something, I don't know. But more than likely, this is just another little teaser for the long game of Kang becoming the next basically Thanos-level threat for the MCU. And then we see Mark doing his thing where he kind of wakes up all of a sudden somewhere else. It happens a few times, one time on the way to the airport, and then it happens again, and he's more or less surrounded by dead bodies, bodies he did not intend to kill. Uh, but somebody keeps taking over the body, Mark, the, the, the body, 
and causing violence, and Stephen, still locked inside their mind, says that it is not him. So we have to assume this is either Jake Lockley, the third persona from the comics, or Khonshu getting in the way against all the rules. When we have when they have the audience with the gods later on, we do see that Khonshu, as well as the others, can possess their avatars and make uh, he can make Mark speak through him, or, or he can speak through Mark. No doubt he could control him physically if he wanted to as well, killing all these guys. More than likely, though, it is going to be the third persona from the comics, Jake Lockley. In the comics, Lockley, the Lockley persona is a cab driver with his finger on the pulse of the deepest reaches of the seedy underworld and a wealth of criminal connections, similar, somewhat similar to Batman's character Matches Malone. While helpful, the third persona really shines a light on Spectre's internal struggle of the self. Jake Lockley came first into play as a personality of Mark's when he was a teen, leading his parents to send him to a psychiatric hospital, and then later leading Mark to join the U.S. Supreme, Supreme U.S. Marine Corps. Lockley comes out again when Mark is an adult as a cab driver and often displays violent tendencies that outweigh the other two alters. In any case, this also brings up the fact that even while awake on the inside, Mark and Steven are not aware of any others inside their mind, even when there is at least one, it seems. So truly, as we talked about after the last episode, there can be infinite more that they just don't know about. Conchu sets up a meeting of the Ennead, who again are the gods of Egypt, the the, the Ennead of Heliopis, Heliopis, something like that. Um, I don't have it written down in front of me, I'm sorry. Uh, He he sets up a meeting to try and get them to stop Harrow from raising Amit and causing a sort of uh, apocalypse. Khonshu, who takes over Mark's body to speak, pleads with his fellow gods to leave the comfort of their home, known as the Overvoid, which is the, it's where the Egyptian gods live separate from the human world. Just as we were talking about Olympus, this is their pocket dimension for the Egyptian Inead, the Overvoid. Okay, Uh, the audience with the gods, though, does not go well. The gods of the Ennead who come to the meeting are Hathor, whose um, avatar is Yatsil, Osiris, whose whose avatar is Selim, and then Horus, Tefna, and Isis, who I don't think we learn the names of their avatars. Notably, this meeting takes place in the chamber of the gods inside the Great Pyramid of Giza, which the historian Stephen cannot get over, which I don't blame him. That's pretty cool. It does make me wonder if the... um, other gods who are not at this meeting have been encased in stone already, or where are they? What's going on? Also, as I have already spent a ridiculous amount of time discussing the topic, for more information on Egyptian mythology tying into Moon Knight, you can see an article linked in the description by fansided.com writer Chelsea Zukowski. Please note that it is a different article than I previously have linked on the topic, so it's not- I'm not sending the same thing twice. It's a new thing! Check it out. It's really cool. Uh, the other avatars end up bringing Harrow to speak his own piece, and he tells them about Mark's, as he says, unwellness. It's his dissociative identity disorder. They ask if it's true, if he's unwell, which he can't deny. They do not care to help him, and they do not see a reason to stop Harrow, who claims innocence. 
Khonshu slash Mark leaves with one last chance, which if he blows, Khonshu will be imprisoned in stone for all eternity. The question of why don't the gods intervene with human struggles comes up here, of course, as it did with the Eternals, but whereas the Eternals seem to have realized an action would mean the destruction of humanity and save the day, why don't the Ennead? Some people have called it a flaw in Moon Knight's plot, but I think that it's just a misunderstanding of these gods' personalities. Yes, they love to be worshipped, but how much worshipping has been done of them in the modern era? Obviously, not as much as previous ancient times. One big factor amongst all groups of gods, it seems, is their entitlement and ability to just not care. No doubt the members of this truly ancient Ennead could literally not be bothered to get off their booties and do a thing for humanity. The laziness of gods is legendary in multiple types of mythology, multiple countries, you know, multiple places of mythology. Um, like you can see here, the, the Ennead, they don't even come to the meeting in person. They send their avatars. It says a lot. And it is just about um, the line as to where their efforts are willing to end is by speaking through their avatars. No doubt the destruction of this world would mean very little to them anyway as they are in a pocket dimension and haven't really seemed to care about humanity in the past couple of thousand years, so they'll be fine. Yatzil, the avatar of Hathor, stops Mark on his way out of the meeting, though, telling him of another way she knows to find Amit's tomb if he really thinks Harrow is up to no good. You can find it through the sarcophagus of Senfu, who was a Magi. With Layla's help, they find that Senfu's sarcophagus was sold on the black market to Anton Mogart. We meet Mogart, aka Midnight Man, as the owner of the sarcophagus containing further instructions to Amit's tomb. Remember, Harrow has the scarab, which leads to the tomb, but this is a second method of locating it. Midnight Man is played by actor Gaspard Uliel, who did die recently uh, after a skiing accident earlier this year. Wear your helmets, folks. Mogar is a thief in the comics, and, and here they insinuate that he's connected to Layla through whatever her apparent tie with Madripoor is. Adding in that Layla has already mentioned that she has no issue with stealing, especially if the stuff was originally stolen, as most Egyptian antiquities are anyway, we can safely assume that she and Midnight Man did a job stealing something together in Madripoor. The visit with Midnight Man goes poorly, of course, and Mark has to don the cape again, but he was extremely reluctant to do so, going as far as to let Stephen have, have a go at it for just a second even, which obviously goes nowhere, before he does it himself. Even Harrow shows up as a, quote, concerned, oh my god, concerned third party. <laughs> again, he takes his chance to stir discord in Mark's mind, trying to make him doubt Khonshu and his own goals. The battle is brutal and Layla even ends up taking lives, but in the end, he and Layla do get away and with the map of the sarcophagus in hand, no less. When they put the pieces of the map together, thanks to Steven's inability to get sand on tape somehow, it turns out to be a star map, but of the constellations as they appeared centuries ago. So Khonshu risks it all and turns the skies back to the night that the map was made so it is usable. Just another massive celestial event happening, no big deal. Of course, after doing this, he's encased in stone by his fellow gods as he knew he would be. We then see that Osiris' avatar is somehow in league with Harrow, and Harrow enters the chamber of the gods once more, addressing the Ushabti prison containing Khonshu, as it can supposedly hear him. 
Harrow confesses he enjoyed dealing out pain on Conchu's behalf, the greatest sin he carries, he says. He reveals his gratitude for Conchu's breaking his spirit, as he can now achieve what Conchu could not in waking Amit and following her apparent goals. Fun fact of this episode goes to Yatzel, the avatar of Hathor, played by Diana Bermudez. She is a British actor of indigenous American heritage who moved to London as a child from her native Colombian meaning she is indigenous Colombian by way of England. She got this role after her breakout role in Horizon the Forbidden West, where she voiced a number of characters, apparently. It says the mob, the arena is connected. Okay, first off, backstory. I love Horizon Zero Dawn. I don't have a PS anything anymore. Actually, I had to sell mine. Um, it is on my wish list, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really, really want to play the Forbidden West. Especially since a lot of it has, like, the Bay Area and San Francisco, and I went to college there, and it's like, ugh, I love it. Um, I, I'm so excited to eventually play that game. It's ridiculous. But, okay, apparently, the Ma of the, uh, the, of the Arena is connected to the Memorial Grove near the center of the Horizon Forbidden West map. It houses one of the best marketplaces in the game, partially because of Prize Master Ducca, voiced by Bermudez. Players can trade arena medals for high-tier items from Ducca. Before she helped superheroes, she helped players in the best marketplace in Horizon Forbidden West. That was a fun quote I found. In the Horizon Forbidden West Fenrise Rebel Camp, Diana Bermudez also provides the voice for Gatek. After infiltrating the camp and killing the leader and rebels, players can speak with Gatek to finish the mission. She also voices an NPC in Landfall named Vetter, who gets players another data point. Young Justice Season 4 Episode 18 was titled Beyond the Grip of the Gods, and we get, um... We get somewhere in this episode with a lot of the plot. So starting off, um, Raquel's son has autism and she struggles on the regular day-to-day -day basis with him. She lives, uh, she's, she's Rocket, by the way. She leaves him with his dad, who she is separated with to go do her Justice League work. As Rocket, she goes to New Genesis as a Justice League rep to speak with the new gods about a treaty. Forager is the first bug of New Genesis to be welcomed to Hightown, where the new gods live. When another bug shows up and starts stealing things, they make chase but cannot find her. She stole a radion power rupture cell. Radion rup powered rupture cell, several thousand years old. Our bug is able to identify where she's from. Turns out she stole it to power her hive's mountain, and they deny having it when Orion and the others show up and ask for it back. But while they talk, a white Martian comes in invisibly and messes with the device. Mountain Forager decides it's for the better that they hand over the device and takes them to their caves. But the larvae start playing with it, and it starts reacting dangerously. Orion goes... Orion goes dark in the attacks, and Light Ray has to bring him down, but the device detonates. We also have revealed in this episode that Orion is claustrophobic. His loss of control is an inheritance from his father, Darkseid, because you remember they switched sons. Um, High Father and Darkseid switch sons, so fun fact. Uh, Metron ends up taking the device to his interdimensional vault for safekeeping. Meanwhile, the human population on Apocalypse is getting restless, and some are starting to think that they are strong enough in numbers to defeat Darkseid. But it turns out that Ma'alafa'ak, the white Martian from the previous arc on Mars, is working with the Parademons to track down insurgents, or potential insurgents even, and get them arrested. He's finally allowed to greet Darkseid himself as he 
and he asks him to fulfill his side of their bargain. But Darkseid instructs the Martian and Mantis to follow a third's instruction, a young man who who introduces himself as Lor Zod. Lor Zod, of course, being the biological son of General Zod and Ursa, his lieutenant. Superboy is still jumping through his oil slick universe. Um, he's still carrying the Legion member. He hallucinates Lex Luthor, reminding him of who he is and what his purpose is. In his mind, Lex tells him that he's doing that he's doing well as his son, but he must leave the dead weight, the Legion member that he still carries. He sees her as Megan and still and he still convinces him. But then he meets someone else who he says he can trust as not being a hallucination because they've never met before. He's real, Superboy is real, and the girl is real. Everything else is just sickness. The man calls himself Drew. He is Drew Zod, aka General Zod. The Zods are coming from all angles. Over the credits, Superman and Black Lightning talk about who is joining the Justice League next. Next up is Doctor Who, Legend of the Sea Devils. This was their spring special that premiered on Sunday, Easter the 17th. It starred Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor. Now, this episode had a lot to do with some really cool stuff that I am personally interested in, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Funny how that works. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the episode and then a bit about Sea Devil history on Doctor Who and then about Xing Sin. Oh, sorry, Xing Shi. Madame Xing, the pirate queen who is a real historical figure. Um, we'll, we'll talk about her after everything else. The episode itself was cute. Uh, kind of exactly what you would expect from a regular Who episode. Not really anything special like about it. The Christmas or holiday specials always had a holiday theme to them. But this was just a regular episode even in length still. Excuse me. Surprise belch. I'm sorry. Uh, still classic Who in my opinion. Um, but again, I, I truly don't understand the hate for this era of Who. Capaldi, totally get it. He had a really odd time. But with Whitaker, to me, she is the perfect combo of Tennant and Smith in female form. Her outfit was a bit out there, true. I think they didn't, I think they, um, they, they really didn't help themselves at all by dressing her like a flamboyant lesbian science teacher because if you're going to go full frizzle, then go full frizzle. They didn't quite make it, I think, as far. I, maybe that was their inspiration for her look. I don't know. Um, I had heard so, so much about how specifically bad her seasons were. That they wiped her memory, ignored everything from past Doctor Who, tried to get uh, completely go in a new direction in that sense. None of that is true. Like I said before, she is a perfect combination of Smith and Tennant, 10 and 11. I suppose I can understand not liking that she had so many companions all at once, but her needing people around her seems to be a big part of the 13th Doctor's personality. As for the cheesiness, it really wasn't any more cheesy than what we saw with Capaldi or Matt Smith, I'd say. And I've said it before, the cheesiness is a big part of the draw for Doctor Who fans. We like the fan service and the kookiness and the made-up science terminology. Um, the story itself, you know, took place over planet-saving odds, and of course they save it in the end, as always. Um, the Doctor and Yaz, um, there'd been kind of this thing where the Yaz had a crush on her, we weren't really sure if the Doctor, like felt any the same way um and in this episode she's like you know if i was to date anybody it would be you but i i just can't it doesn't work with my lifestyle but if i was i would date you 
And it was a really well done scene, I think. Um, I'm sure people didn't like it, but that's life. So let's go ahead and talk the Sea Devils history. The Sea Devils first appeared in a 1972 episode of Who, simply titled The Sea Devils. Here they go up against the third Doctor, who is John Pertwee, companion to Joe Grant, played by Katie Manning. They returned for a brief appearance in 1973's Frontier in Space, where Joe hallucinates one of the creatures when she is exposed to hypnosis. In their return in 1984 with a shiny new paint job, much to the disappointment of all viewers, it would seem, Warriors of the Deep is a story featuring the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, the only instance where the Silurians and the Sea Devils appear on screen together. You might remember the Silurians or the lizard people in layman's terms from the Smith era episodes that delved into their society. It was 2010's The Hungry Earth and the Cold Below. Oh, sorry. The Hungry Earth and the Cold Blood, as well as Madame Vastra, the lesbian-leaning Silurian crime fighter from the Victorian era. The Sea Devils are somewhat cousins to the Silurians, as the first Doctor, as the first Doctor, sorry, as the first two native intelligent species on Earth, one below the Earth, one below the sea. The Sea Devils have appeared in tons of spin-off media of Doctor Who, so there is no shortage to find out more about them if you are curious. Let's talk Madame Shing, the Pirate Queen. You should know I am a slut for pirate history. Just had to make sure you heard that. Uh, it's lame, I know, completely, totally lame, but being of a very impressionable age when the Pirates of the Caribbean movie started coming out had a great effect on me and my history-loving heart. And yes, Madame Xing did appear in the third Pirates movie as one of the pirate you know, lords or kings or whatever, um, and was a key contributor to getting things moving to Elizabeth's side, i.e. going to war. I told you it had an effect. Um, just to preface this, I am going to be mispronouncing things because I can't seem to not, or can't seem to figure out how to say things correctly, I guess. Um, but I will be, uh, doing my best. <laughs> so she was born, Madame Shing was born in 1775. She was active as a pirate from 1801 to 1810 in the China Sea before her death in 1844. She didn't just have one pirate ship, oh no, in her lifetime. She managed to personally command the force of over 300 pirate ships and 20,000 pirates. On top of that, she managed to forge alliance with many other pirate leaders who followed her and created a naval force that counted over 1,500 naval ships and 180,000 pirates. The thing that makes her almost unique in entire sea pirate history is the fact that she managed to walk away from piracy unpunished and live her days in peace until she died from old age in her sleep in 1844 at the age of 69. Baller! Oh, it's so cool. She was a Cantonese prostitute who rose quickly through the ranks in the brothel of her birthplace city. And I am pronounced this wrong, I know it. Gangzhou. I'm sorry. She was famous for using her incredible effective pillow talk, as it says, to influence men. When she started as a pirate, her intimate command attracted the attention of the famous Chinese, or sorry, intimidating command attracted the attention of famous Chinese pirate Chang the First. I guess. Um, or Chang I. I'm sorry, I don't actually know if that's a one or an L or an I. They choose to marry each other 
so that their pirate business could be united and grow to incredible size. She took great advantage from this marriage union, solidifying her place in the large pirate fleet and organizing a coalition with many other large Cantonese pirate fleets. After the death of her husband, Cheng, in 1807, she took control of the fleet, immediately starting a romantic relationship with his adopted son and lover, Cheng Pao. No, I'm not sure whose lover that means, and no, I'm not going to think about it too hard. Her success comes in great part from her insistence that all pirates under her command respect a very strict pirate code. That pirate code had three main rules and several secondary rules, all of them influenced pirate sailors into the tight-knit group that was very organized and tough to beat. The rules were as followed. Pirates who gave unsanctioned orders or who refused to follow orders were executed on the spot. Stealing from the public fund of captured goods or money or raiding villages that supported pirates was punishable by death. All captured goods, money, or slaves had to be presented for inspection. The rewards were handed out in a predetermined way. It was also prohibited to have sex or rape female captives. <clears throat> pirates could marry pretty could marry pretty captives if they had the means to support them and be faithful to them, but the rest were either ransomed or freed. Punishment for having sex or raping with them was death. Various other offenses were punishable by flogging, ironing, quartering, and mutilation. This was almost exclusively performed on deserters. China, England, France, and other countries had had interests to clear pirate activity from the Chinese Sea and had no solution for Qing. Uh, after she started losing grip on her fleet in 1810 and the Pirate Alliance broke into six distinct groups, she elected to take the big opportunity that was offered by the, by King Emperor Zhai King. I'm sorry. She and Chang Pao received full royal pardons, while he continued to hunt remnants of dissolved red flag f their dissolved red flag fleet as a leader of a newly formed governmental pirate hunting fleet until his early death. Hmm, karma. Well, you know, that's not how karma is, but you know. Uh, Ching Sing, she uh, returned to Lan and resumed her life as mistress of a local brothel and organizer of various smuggling and gambling enterprises. So, in the end, Madame Xing won that. Won everything, really. Which wraps up today's episode again. Uh, you can look at links at the bottom. There is more on the future of DC Entertainment from Variety, more on Madame Xing from Way of the Pirates, and more on Egyptian Gods and Moon Knight from winteriscoming.net of all places. Uh, again, different article than I have previously posted as a, as a Moon Knight, uh, Egyptian Gods, you know, introspective kind of thing. So be sure to check that one out as well. Which brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, be sure, again, to check out the Magic Podcast. Batman is on HBO Max, so that's exciting. And uh, tomorrow is a new episode of Moon Knight, episode four? Yeah, episode four, as we're kind of getting close to wrapping things up. I think I may have said episode five earlier, which was wrong. Um Let's see what else is coming up. It was Easter recently, so happy spring. I hope you had a nice renewing uh, weekend or period. Um, and we will be back for another regularly scheduled episode on... It will be the 25th and 26th, because I've been doing Tuesdays a lot just because it's a little bit easier. So we'll be back early next week to discuss uh, uh, this week's comics, whatever comes up in the news, uh, any new theories and stuff, picks and pulls... 
uh, Moon Knight episode four, as it will be. And let's see, there should be another episode of Young Justice and whatever else strikes our fancy that we want to put in here to discuss. Um, and I may have the Batman podcast out between now and then as well. So keep your eyes open. There's going to be at least one podcast coming out in the next week. And then the uh, the May Yancey Street special is going to be about Patsy Walker, which is super exciting. And I am uh, looking forward to sharing that with you as well. In the meantime, have an excellent, uh, excellent week. Um, enjoy Moon Knight. Enjoy whatever it is that you're watching or keeping up with or listening or reading. Uh, get sweaty about your hobbies because that's how you find enjoyment in life. So um, have a great week. I appreciate all of the listening that anybody does. Um, and we will see you next time.